Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm so excited that February and Valentine's Day is coming up. How are you? I'm excited, too. What do you guys do for Valentine's Day? We typically cook each other a really nice dinner. My favorite Valentine's Day, we had a competing menu on two different nights. My spouse and I cooked dinner for each other with a three-course meal, and that was a lot of fun cooking at home. I like that idea. Span it over a couple of days, and not just one person is doing something. You're both doing something for each other. That's very cool. So when you choose your meal, how do you go about choosing? When I think about cooking a romantic meal, I think about incorporating flavors and foods that I know we particularly love. I'm also thinking about things that might set the stage for a little romance to happen later in the evening. Nice light food so that you don't feel so heavy and bulky or things that are just maybe a little bit better, a little different than our average everyday meals. Special occasion food. How about you? Yeah. We actually plan it together. Which is fun. But there's always one little surprise in there. And going back to those foods that kind of set the mood for the whole meal, some of those things we think about more often than we would just a regular meal that we're preparing together. So it sounds like we should talk about these foods a little bit further. There's definitely some foods that history has determined to be aphrodisiac. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. I think that's a great idea. So a little note for maybe our more sensitive listeners, we are going to be talking about sex today, notably food and sex. And we're going to be using some scientifically accurate terms that if you feel a little squeamish, then we would maybe recommend re-listening to our better episode or one of our other episodes. (laughs) Like Kim said, we will be using some vernacular that is sexually... No. (laughs) We will be using some vernacular. We're going to be talking about sex, but it'll be food related, so it's innocent. Put simply, an aphrodisiac is a substance believed to increase amorous desire or pleasure and to encourage sexual behavior. The word is Greek in origin, meaning related to Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love and lust. More or less. So the myth of the aphrodisiac is notably an example of an effort that humans do to influence an internal state of being from an external source. And this is a lot like we've been talking about with applied luck or eating your luck. And virility and sexual potency is one of the core tenets of being a human being. That's how we make other humans. And so having the ability to influence or control our sexuality basically makes one practically godlike. It's like the ultimate in being a human. And we have tried just about everything under the sun, drinks, powders, potions, food, drugs, talismans, to enhance the human sexual experience. Some of the really common foods that you've probably heard of in your life as being an aphrodisiac are, well, the most common is is oysters. 
oysters and really anything from the sea is considered an aphrodisiac, remember, from Aphrodite because it evokes her. She rose from the ocean in a clamshell. So those foods that evoke sea foam and salt air and brininess are associated with her. Legendary lover Casanova reportedly would eat 50 raw oysters for breakfast in order to maintain his virility and stamina. But the reality is that oysters are rich in zinc, and this is essential for sexual maturation and sperm development. Raw oysters contain two amino acids that I'm not going to try to pronounce, and these may be associated with increased sex hormone levels, at least in animals. There's not a whole lot of scientific human research about this quite yet. The other food you might think of fondly is chocolate. But chocolate's a food that pretty much thrives on its reputation for being an aphrodisiac rather than actually having scientific properties that enhance sexual desire or performance. Don't get me wrong, chocolate is delicious. I love it. But I can't truthfully say that chocolate always consistently delivers on that emotional payload that it's supposed to. I actually think that it's pretty ironic that chocolate is something that we talk about as being a soothing, delicious, comforting kind of food that we also rely on the same food to inflame sexual desire. Another food used in conjunction with chocolate, of course, strawberries. And with their lusty red color, heart-shaped bodies, and sweet tart flavor, the strawberry is long associated with Venus, and she is the Roman goddess invocation of love. I did find this one fun fact that rumor has it, and this is not my gross fun fact, but rumor has it that Madame Taylin who was a contemporary of Emperor Napoleon, bathed in the juice of 22 pounds of fresh strawberries on a regular basis. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if that was meant to improve her complexion or her odor. I imagine strawberry wafting down the hallway would be quite lovely. One of our other favorite aphrodisiac foods are chili peppers. Capsicin in peppers triggers a feeling of heat. Your face will flush when you eat them. Your heart rate will accelerate. You may sweat a little bit. And this is actually the result of the body releasing epinephrine and endorphins. And these give you a full body rush. So you got juice flowing through your veins when you're eating chili peppers. And the last one I have are figs. Now this one goes back to the Bible. It's one of the fruits specifically mentioned growing in the Garden of Eden. And there is speculation among scholars that figs are actually the forbidden fruit and not the apple. Reality is, though, that figs are high in antioxidants, flavonoids, and polyphenols, and these are all compounds that make us feel really good. And of course, there's just certain flavors that we all individually find particularly appealing. I'm crazy partial to black tea infused with rose flavor. It makes me swoony when I drink it. And then separately, not mixed in, (laughs) I love shiitake mushrooms. For me, they're particularly luscious flavor, and I think they're fabulous. Humans will go to considerable lengths to go to considerable lengths in the bedroom. So some of the less savory aphrodisiacs that I've come across or techniques involve smearing a crocodile heart mixture on the penis, and that's meant to evoke the spirit and the virility of a crocodile, Mm. eating kasu marzu, which is a rotting cheese riddled with maggots, sprinkling food with ground rhino horn, Or spiking a drink with the infamous Spanish fly, which is actually ground up blister beetles whose bodies contain a toxic blistering agent. There were a lot of things in there that relate back to why and how these foods have come to be considered aphrodisiacs. The rhino horn, Mm -hmm. for one, that's a visual similarity. It's the law of similarities that like causes like. So, of course, the rhino horn, very phallic, would evoke 
of course, an erection. Mm -hmm. Things like sea cucumbers, asparagus, similarly, oysters, a little bit more on the feminine side rather than the male components. You also talked about Casanova, which I thought was really interesting. And this goes back to more stories and rumors and folklore that have pulled these foods into the aphrodisiac realm. You talked about chocolate. Scientifically, there are some components in there. There's some amphetamines in chocolate. But one of the rumors, stories, folklores around chocolate was that Montezuma consumed 50 cups of chocolate before he would visit his harem. Oh, my goodness. 50 seems to be a recurring recurring number here. (laughs) Whoa, 50 (laughs) cups of chocolate. And now this would be like Aztec chocolate, though, not chocolate by our current modern standards. Exactly. Yeah, much more savory than what our current standards are. And then also luxury items. And chocolate would have been considered one of those luxury items, right? Truffles, chocolate, champagne, caviar, foie gras. That affluence is desirable as well. And then you go into the science of things like spices, cinnamons, and ginger, and the chilies. They're all warming and they create that feeling of warmth in our bodies. Oysters, like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. contain zinc. And alcohol loosens the inhibitions. So it's it's interesting to see how both culture and science, now we can see the science behind these foods, but how cultures have played really very strongly into what has been considered an aphrodisiac food. And so many foods that I didn't even think about being aphrodisiacs outside of these four reasons why Love magic and love potions and tonics can be effective. It's the pharmacological efficacy or how effective they are pharmacologically. Again, going back to the science, it activates a cognitive structure. So either symbolically or linguistically. So Aphrodite being that linguistic connection or symbolically things that look phallic or look like female parts exerts physiological effects through the power of suggestion. And I thought that was Mm. really fascinating Mm -hmm. that there is this power of suggestion around a lot of these aphrodisiac foods and that it stimulates the senses. When we talk about chocolate, that it really doesn't have a whole lot of effect other than the senses. It's a luxurious food. Yeah. I I feel like it comes back to this concept of transference, that we're transferring power from something actually basic. Genitalia is intended for sexual function for both pleasure and reproduction, but we've imbued it with this sort of sense of power as well. So there's a sense that by imbibing these foods and these drinks that are representative of those things, or literally are, that we're doubling down on assuming the literal and cultural power that they possess. Exactly. Yeah. And that leads right into the first aphrodisiac food that I wanted to talk about, which is the avocado. I did not realize that the avocado was an aphrodisiac food, but it is. And the interesting thing about this is that it, it relates directly to genitalia. The Aztecs called the avocado tree a wakat. I learned a little bit about the Aztec language, that TL at the end, mm. it's more like a CH oh, okay. kind of thing. It's a wakat. A wakat. Yeah. Okay. I'll work on it. Yeah. Anyway, a wakat means testicle. 
And the reason that they called it this is because obviously the shape of the avocado itself, but also the fact that they grow in pairs, which oh, I didn't know because I, I don't grow avocados. I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to look at an avocado the same way. Right. So the other thing is that Louis XIV turned to the avocado for vim and vigor, mm -hmm. and he actually named it La Bonne. It's the word for pear in French, but it means the po good pear. Poire. 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 La Bonne yes. Poire. He was and a lusty fellow, too. So he probably used the avocado a lot. Probably. Yeah. Scientifically, they're very high in vitamin E, which helps maintain energy levels and vigor. And the recipe suggestion that I have for you is an avocado lime soup. Ooh. Which is so delicious and so beautiful. Avocado and lime with a little bit of shredded chicken over the top of it and a little bit of paprika mm -hmm. or cayenne. It's delicious. I could also imagine a little bit of poached salmon or shrimp. Yes. Yes, shrimp would be fabulous and, as and well. And you could invite Aphrodite into your bowl. You could. Mm, for a little avocado bath. I think I'd take an avocado bath over a strawberry. <laughs> right? <honestly. laughs> uh, and the next one that I wanted to talk about was basil, mm. because I think that we're all pretty familiar with basil. Yeah. Symbolically, it's been a symbol of love for a very long time. It's sacred to Krishna and Vishnu, and it's nearly canonized in the ancient and pretty current Greek cultures. Right. Basil is said to be bountiful around the tomb of Christ. So it's got this godlike aspect about it. Mm -hmm. And the fragrance is said to guide the body and spirit into unity with perception and acceptance. Oh, that's pretty. In Haiti, it belongs to the love goddess and is said to return the wandering eye of a lover. Oh, gosh, I wish I knew about that in my 20s. Or not. No, if they're wandering, yeah. then do you really want them back? No. Not me. <laughs> Scientifically, it's an anti-inflammatory. It's And it contains some libido-enhancing nutrients. Ooh. It's got vitamin A, beta-carotene, magnesium, potassium, and vitamin C, which we already talked about as a receptor for iron specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, vitamin C. It's a helper for nutritional iron. My recipe suggestion for Valentine's Day for this ingredient would be a marguerite pizza. Oh, yes. Mm, yeah. Nice, simple, yeah. bold flavors, though. Yep. Oh, I yeah. like that. And the next one is beets. And this one oh. surprised me, too. I had no idea. No, me neither. <laughs> that one is a surprise. So ancient Romans believed that the juice of beets promoted amorous feelings, mm -hmm. which can be evidenced by the frescoes of beets on the Lupinare brothel. Oh, really? In Pompeii. Oh, cool. Going back to Aphrodite, she is said to have eaten beets to enhance her appeal. Mm. Scientifically, they contain tryptophan, which is interesting because I think turkey tryptophan sleeping, but tryptophan promotes this feeling of well-being. Oh, yeah. And boron, which is a trace mineral that increases the level of sex hormones in the body. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. 
my suggested recipe for beets for Valentine's Day is a roasted beet salad with oranges, avocado, and feta cheese. Those are all four aphrodisiac Absolutely. foods. So man, you, you are set. You are quadrupling down on that salad. Exactly. And the last one is chickpeas. Really? Chickpeas. No. Yes. No, I don't believe you. Yeah. Okay, convince me. Okay. <laughs> it's been accepted as an aphrodisiac in the Middle and Near East for ages. And in the, and I probably will mispronounce this, so please don't get too angry with me. Ananga Ranga, which is an Indian sacred sexuality manual, there's a recipe for chickpea cakes, which states that if eaten every morning, you will be able to enjoy a hundred women. <laughs> That's a hundred, a hundred, not 50. Not 50. Mm -hmm. Okay. A hundred. And these are particularly mm -hmm. high in protein, fiber, folate, all of which are right. really high energy givers. And of course the recipe for this would absolutely have to be hummus. Mm -hmm. Yummy. Mm -hmm. I had really yeah. good hummus last night. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a euphemism, although it might become one now. I had really great hummus last night. It was, it was amazing. That was really cool. The ABCs of aphrodisiacs. I had never considered any of those foods. Although, as you've pointed out, some of them are really well known. When I thought of aphrodisiacs, I thought the same things. You think yeah. strawberries, chocolate, oysters, first things that come to mind. There are so many more that were so fascinating, but I thought I'd keep it at the ABCs. Sounds good. We'll hit up the DEFs <laughs> next year. I can't pronounce the name of the book that you evoked, but I did look a little bit into the Kama Sutra, which is a collection mm. of manuscripts about courtship, love, and sexuality that have really become a cultural touchstone. I think this is, to borrow an awkward phrase, the Bible of sex in many ways. Right. <laughs> it's an interesting manuscript and I'm, I'm gonna just call it a book because i think most people think of it that way these days mm -hmm. scholars trace it back to about second century but honestly its authors and origination dates are unknown we've had this document as long as we know which i think is is really cool we in the west tend to think about the kama sutra as a manual for sexual positions and it absolutely right. does contain that element but what is really less known about it is that it's got a lot of practical advice about the various forms of love, the different types of relationships, and how to be successful at both sex and romance. That includes personal hygiene and basically how to eat to optimize your sexual life. So in our curry episode, we had talked about Ayurvedic foods. And just to recap, they're part of a broader system of thought about how food affects our health and therefore how we are as human beings. Right. So the following foods are suggested by the Kama Sutra as part of a good sexual diet, if you will. Now, sattvic foods are the best to consume. They lend themselves to a clear mind and a light body. And these are the foods that we've been talking about. So these are fruit, milk, honey, vegetables that grow above ground, nuts, some grains, and, and lots of spices that may sound familiar, again, from the curry episode. Coriander, cumin, fenugreek, turmeric, and ginger. 
Rajasic foods are ones that stimulate the senses, but can sometimes be difficult to digest. And so these are recommended in basically a moderation. Foods from this category are fish and chicken, other spices, salt, and root vegetables like potatoes, carrots. Even though a lot of those foods actually are often eaten because of their phallic connotations, they're like a middle ground. Foods that you are suggested to avoid kind of harken back a little bit to comfort food. And when you think about it... Mm. You do start to think of like, I wouldn't really want to eat my comfort food and then kick it with my partner. These are the Thomasic foods that are considered problematic because they're harder to digest and can cause lethargy and flatulence, which nobody wants in the bedroom. And these are things like onions, garlic, red meat, and deep fried food. Now, what I think is really interesting is that nutritionally speaking, the sattvics and the rajvik foods, the, the ones that are considered better for you are ones that we know are high in nutrients. And these are minerals and chemical compounds that really help us regulate our hormones. So all this is suggesting that our optimal health is truly optimal hormonal health. When I talk about regulating hormones, I am, of course, talking about estrogen, testosterone. Every human has these in, in varying degrees, and having them in balance basically means that we're a healthy person. Historically, these aphrodisiacs weren't solely about pleasure, but these foods are also inextricably linked to like male fertility. Basically, they were antidotes to erectile dysfunction. The ability to develop and sustain an erection and having potent sperm to father children was the height of what it was to be a good man. And I don't mean a good man right. in a moral way, but mm -hmm. like an actual functioning, healthy adult man. Well, and it goes back to that procreation, which Absolutely. is critical. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting when we start to dig down into that what we're re really talking about is power and nutrition. Mm -hmm. You know, a the power part is really, I think that's a given. Yeah. Even this recipe, if eaten every morning, you will be able to enjoy a hundred women. Right. That clearly, the time that it was written, it clearly is in reference to male vigor. And I think the thing I found really compelling too, with, with a lot of what you had said today, Leah, also was that there's this sort of hidden notion too, that we may not know the, all the science behind things. I think on average, we don't walk around and say, oh, I'm going to eat a tomato with my spinach salad today because the vitamin C in my tomato is going to help with my nutritional uptake <laughs> for the right. iron from my spinach. But we, most of us do know that we maybe like a little squeeze of lemon juice or cooked spinach. So there's this hidden body knowledge about what foods can do for us Yes. And not just how they make us feel in our headspace, but how we feel in our body. There's a sacred knowledge to knowing that you need to eat certain foods to balance your hormones and right. that you'll feel vigorous, that you'll feel virile, that you'll feel open to being seduced by a partner or to seducing a partner. There's science to it, but that our bodies actually know better than we do what what right. they need. And certainly when it comes to our sexual health and to our sexual lives, that's something to really honor. I agree. I love that we ended with this part of this being so sacred and going back to both of those manuscripts 
the Ananga Ranga and the Kama Sutra. It was interesting because when I looked up Ananga Ranga on Wikipedia and its explanation was it was the Indian sex manual. Mm -hmm. But then when I went to look at the book itself, it's considered a sacred sexuality yes. manual. It just says so much more about what sexuality is. It is sacred and it is part of who we are. And if we do start to rely on our bodies to tell us what they need and look back at that sacred knowledge that is in every one of us, I think that, man, we would be pretty amazing. I agree so much. I feel really inspired to go get some avocados and to to enjoy them and, and think about what I've learned about them today. So I think I'll have some avocado. That sounds good. I actually had some for breakfast. I think oh, what I'm lucky. craving right now is that beet salad. Gosh, thank you for the inspiration, Lai. Mm, you're welcome. Thank you. It's going to be a delicious day. Maybe I'll have some hummus too. <laughs> okay, before you go and enjoy your hummus. What can our listeners expect for next week? Oh, our listeners are going to be in for a treat because we are going to be talking about the foods of Mardi Gras. It's an exciting time of year, a delicious time of year, and there is so much to unpack in the lore of Mardi Gras. So stay tuned. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>